Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. friends, Elisa Childers here. Have you ever been discussing a particular Bible passage with another Christian only to be told, well, that's just your interpretation? Biblical interpretation can be tough, so I've got a special guest on with me today to talk about some of the most misunderstood Bible verses. I'm also going to let you know about some fun stuff we have coming up in the next few weeks, so stay tuned. a lot of uh, fun and exciting things coming up in the next few weeks that I just wanted to let you know about and ask for your prayer uh, as well. The first thing that's pretty fun is that we're going to have Sean McDowell on the podcast coming up. We haven't set an official date for when we're going to record that, but it looks like it's going to be sometime at the end of April or early May. So be looking for that. We're going to be talking about the brand new, fully updated evidence that demands a verdict. Of course, this book was written originally by his father, Josh McDowell. And now Sean, who has his PhD, uh, they came together, they updated all of the information, and it's just an amazing resource that every Christian needs to have. Uh, just virtually every argument against Christianity that you will hear, you can you can use this book as a reference and look it up, and they'll have written uh, all the updated information about it. So we're going to talk to Sean about that book. I'm also going to be asking him about his PhD work in what actually happened to all of the apostles. Because one of the arguments for the resurrection of Jesus is that apologists will say, well, all of the apostles were tortured and killed for their eyewitness testimony. And so when, when Sean was trying to find a topic for his PhD dissertation, he realized that nobody had actually really done the scholarly work on that, about what actually happened to each one of the apostles and eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So we're going to ask him about that. So that should be really interesting 
The other really exciting thing that is uh, going on has to do with my podcast that I did with Holly Pivick a few weeks ago on the New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR. Now, I will tell you that this podcast by far was my most responded to, my most listened to, and the one that I received the most emails and messages about. Uh, people were very, very interested in that topic. Obviously, it's it's something that not a lot of people are talking about, and um, I just had a tremendous response to it. So recently on Twitter, I reposted one of Holly's blog posts in which she was addressing a video that was made by Dr. Michael Brown. And if anyone doesn't know Dr. Michael Brown, he is an apologist and scholar, and he has sort of in the past and more recently been kind of defending the New Apostolic Reformation or, or even suggesting that it's not as widespread or that Holly hasn't quite gotten the definition of it right. And so when I posted her blog post on my Twitter account, Dr. Brown came on and sort of was challenging it. And so long story short, it was a, it was a very cordial exchange but it ended with Dr. Michael Brown agreeing to come on my podcast and have a discussion with Holly Pivick and her co-author, who's a philosophy professor at Biola University, um, Dr. Doug Guyvet. And the three of them are going to have a discussion, a little bit of a debate over what the NAR is and how organized it is and how far-reaching its influence is within the church. And so I am really looking forward to that. So if you want to be praying for for that, for clarity, for the truth of the gospel to shine through, that's going to be recorded on April 17th, and then it will probably be posted. It's not going to be broadcast live, but it will be uh, recorded and then probably posted um, a few days after that, maybe a week after that. So please keep uh, Dr. Brown, Dr. Guyavit, and Holly in your prayers as uh, everybody prepares for this, I think, a really important discussion. All right, well, let's get into today's discussion, which is really interesting to me. Let me let me tell you about our guest first, and then I'll kind of set up what we're going to be talking about. So my guest is Clark Bates, and he holds a bachelor's degree in religion from Liberty University, uh, graduating magna cum laude as well as a master's of divinity degree from Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. He is currently working on a second master's of theology degree, and he's majoring in New Testament studies and minoring in church history with the goal of eventually pursuing a PhD in one of my favorite topics, textual criticism. He's also actively involved with transcription and collation of New Testament manuscripts with the Institute for New Testament Research in Munster, Germany, which is really interesting. I want to ask him about that in a moment. And he's currently working with the Museum of the Bible's Greek Paul Project. So Clark has a great website where he blogs and makes videos, and the address for his website is exegesus.com, and that is spelled E-X-E-J-E-S-U-S dot com. So Clark, I'm so thrilled that you came on with me today. Thank you, Lisa. It's good to be here. Clark, tell us about the transcription and collation of the New Testament manuscripts that you're doing. That sounds really interesting. 
Um, yeah, I like I like that people when people think it sounds interesting because you know for a lot of people it probably sounds very boring, but um, <laughs> it is it is for me it's very it's an exciting thing. It's a chance to look back into history, and uh, for most people that don't even know this exists in Munster, Germany is what they call the Institute for New Testament uh, Textual Research, and they contain the database for just about every biblical manuscript that exists, mm. and that includes um, commentaries from the church fathers and the like. Uh, so they, just like you might have heard of Dan, uh, Dan Wallace's uh, CSNTM project that he works with in Dallas, where they take photos and digitize manuscripts, Germany has been doing that for many years. Now, not all of their images are of great quality, like uh, Professor Wallace's, but um, they have thousands upon thousands. And they need people because you, they don't have the staff to do it. They need people to come in from the outside who have a training in the languages and an ability to read uh, various forms of old Greek uh, to transcribe these into a readable format for people to uh, use for investigation for various textual research uh, projects and things like that. Mm. Uh, so I've been doing that for a few years. The Working with the Museum of the Bible through uh, Munster has been a recent thing, uh, but we are trying to put together pretty much every every Pauline manuscript of the pastoral epistles, so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, uh, everything from roughly the 9th century forward, wow. uh, and get them all recorded because they're trying to produce what's called the um, the critical edition of the pastoral epistles. So like if you have a Greek New Testament, uh, if you, it usually has at the base of the New Testament all the different manuscripts that say certain words, if there's any kind of uh, difference in manuscripts it records where those are at so this uh, this critical edition they've done one for Acts and they've done one for I believe the Gospel of Mark uh, this critical edition is going to include every possible variant wow. <laughs> so it'll be a very large project it's probably going to be a couple of years of work to get done but uh, it's they're going to try to get through the entire New Testament and uh, at the rate we're going, I would imagine 20 years will probably be uh, at least be an estimated time. Wow. Well, let's go ahead and get into the subject for today. And just to give the listeners a little bit of background, uh, Clark and I have known each other for a couple of years. Uh, he's kind of my New Testament guy whenever I have a question about something that has to do with textual stuff or something like that, I'll ask Clark. And so recently he approached me and he's aware of the work that I've done about progressive Christianity and asked me to do a guest post on his site about the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, and even abused Bible verses that I've come across in my reading and my research on progressive Christianity. And I realized, too, that it's not just progressive Christians that, you know, take verses out of context or or misinterpret them, but kind of we all can tend to do that. So uh, I, I thought, well, why don't we just have Clark come on the podcast and we can discuss these different verses and then maybe I'll write a sum up or something uh, for his website. So with that said, we kind of have to lay a foundation before we can actually get into the actual interpretation of the verses. And so we're going to talk about a discipline called hermeneutics. So I want to ask you first, Clark, before we get into some of these more specific verses, what is hermeneutics? How can, uh, and why, why does every Christian need to understand that word? Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, hermeneutics, is, it's, it's a big word. Scholars like to use big words. I think it helps justify how much money we spend on education. <laughs> um, and 
Hermeneutics is a Greek word. It just means interpret or to the method of interpretation. And uh, it's, it's something that we apply to any, any book, really any book we read at all, but especially to books that are, that are old. So you could say that if you had the book of Homer's Iliad in front of you, um, because we didn't live in the time of, of that writing, a lot of what it talks about isn't going to resonate with mm. us. So part of the process of understanding the book is to start looking at what it meant when it was written. And that's a hermeneutical principle. Uh, and so hermeneutics is the, the science of interpretation. And, I mean, we would do the same thing if we read a book today. I mean, you do that when you read Mark Twain. Right. Uh, you know, you, you seek to understand, you know, what it was like in the, for the life of Mark Twain in, in the Midwest or in the South, uh, those kind of things. Uh, so it's a principle that we apply to all books, but it also applies to scriptures. So, I mean, it, the, the, the Bible itself, everyone should be able to agree, is a collection of books, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. So if we're using a principle to interpret books every day of our lives that we read, it would stand to reason that we would still use a principle to interpret the Bible because it's a book. Um, and so because it's an ancient book, there's a few extra steps that have to be taken. Um, and it's important to, to kind of walk through those if we want to really understand it. I mean, we could make anything say whatever we want, um, but the question becomes, is what we're trying to make it say accurate to what it said when it was written. Um, and, you know, some people are going to have different opinions on how, how important that is. But uh, for me and for those who study things like the New Testament and even just classical literature, it's vitally important to know what it meant at the time because otherwise we won't have any way of understanding it for us today. So um, well, some of the principles would simply be uh, the idea of, first off, understanding what type of literature you're reading. You know, you don't read a poem with the same... Uh, thoughts as you would read like a, a book of history. You know, poetry is, is very fluid with language. It uses colorful imagery. Um, you know, for an example of the Bible, you know, it, we talk, you hear of God being spoken of as, as a strong tower, but you don't actually think God is this cylindrical stone fortress <laughs> somewhere in the heaven. You know, so you, you, you automatically know that. You know, you don't, no one has to explain that to you. It's something you just, you, you know, because it's poetry. Um, so you need to understand what type of book you're reading. And since the Bible is made up of 66 books, um, it becomes important to know, okay, what, what is this kind of writing? Um, so that's one step. Know what you're reading uh, because the what you're reading determines how it, what it means. Um, but, but the next one would be what did it mean to the people it was written to? You know, it was written to a certain group of people, maybe even a particular person in some cases, uh, in a particular time that we're going through a specific thing. And so it's, it, especially if you read something like the Old Testament prophets, I don't know about anybody that might listen, but for the longest time, the, the minor prophets, the Old Testament was one of the hardest sections of the Bible for me to ever grasp uh, because I didn't really have any idea what they were talking about. Uh, didn't have the circumstances they were going through. So it took a long time to, to learn kind of the scenarios that were going on in, in the nation at the time. But that helps you understand what they mean and what they're talking about. So once you know what it means to them at that time, then you can start talk, trying to consider what does that mean to me now? Um, so this is what we call bridging the gap. If you think about maybe one piece of property on one side of a river and one piece of property on the other side, and you know, on the one side of the river is the ancient you know, Middle East, and on the other side is 21st century America. We need to put build a bridge over that river for us to understand what they're going through. And so what, when you bridge the gap, what you're doing is you're, you're looking at what their experiences are 
uh, what the principles are, being, are that are being said and how does that relate now. So knowing what they went through helps us understand how it fits to what we're going through. Um, and that ultimately helps us understand what this book or what this particular passage might be saying. And of course, there's, there's some more specifics to that. You know, mm-hmm. you, like Greg Kopel is famous for saying, you never read just a Bible verse. Right. You know, you, you always read the verses uh, that are around it. Um, so you want to know what the verse means in the thought that it's part of. You know, it's, it could be a chapter, it could be more, it could be less. Um, and you want to know what that whole chapter might mean in the relation to the whole book. Mm-hmm. And what does that book mean in the relation to the whole Bible? You know, so it kind of expands outward from there. But all these are important things. And, and before anybody gets overwhelmed by that, most of it we do instinctively. Right. We don't, we don't really have to be trained in it. For the most part, we get that. It's, it's when we start asking questions about um, what did it mean to them, that, that step sometimes gets skipped, and how does it fit with everything else that's being said. Those are two very important steps that we, we can skip if we're not careful. Yeah, so just, just to recap it, you're saying know what you're reading, know the genre, know who it was written to, what was going on in their world, what did it mean to them, and then what does it mean now? to us. So, uh, one great example of this is, you know, often, um, this isn't actually one of the ones we're going to talk about, but I probably should have, but you know, you, you (laughs) see a lot in progressive circles where they'll say, Hey, you know, conservative Christians disapprove of homosexuality, but they eat shellfish and they wear mixed fabrics in their clothes. And so, you know, but if you apply the, the principles of hermeneutics to that, then you can understand that God made certain covenants with Israel that he didn't make with anybody else that were fulfilled in Jesus. And it's really not that difficult to explain, but if somebody doesn't know those things, that can seem like a really compelling argument. So right. um, that's that's really good. I think that might be a blog post in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm glad I got <laughs> So um, uh, let's get into some of these misinterpreted or abused Bible verses. And so I've just kind of pulled out a few. You're going to be like my Bible answer man, okay? So I'm going to ask sure. you the questions. I'm going to give you... Um, Only I'm not Greek Orthodox. Yes, I was going to say, but you're not allowed to go Greek Orthodox <laughs> on us, okay? So, um, <laughs> uh, so misinterpreted Bible verses, and then we're going to get from you some good hermeneutics on how to interpret these verses. So the first one that I read a lot in progressive circles and hear a lot is Isaiah 1:11. And so I'm going to start in verse 10, and it says here, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asked the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams. Uh, I have no desire for the blood of bulls or lambs or male goats. And then he goes on uh, in verse 13 to even say, stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. And he goes through their, their festivals and solemn assemblies. He says, I can't stand it anymore. You know, don't, don't do this stuff anymore. And so um, typically in progressive circles, they, were in, they will interpret. And there's more. There's a lot of actually verses kind of like this in the old, peppered throughout the Old Testament. And just to give you a specific example, there's a blogger, I actually really find this guy to be very clear in the way he presents his arguments. So I like to, to read what he's saying because uh, I actually think he's very clear. His name's Benjamin Corey, and he has a blog. And, and so his argument from the progressive side is um, basically like he's got a blog post called like, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like God never wanted blood anyway. And so he says in the blog post, He says, the other day I noted that if God had demanded a blood sacrifice of a perfect sinless human, 
he would not be all that different from pagan deities who demanded blood to appease them. So he starts with the basis of saying, you know, which is typical in those circles, that God never needed Jesus's blood. That was something we did. And uh, Rob Bell expounded this idea on a tour. He went on, the tour is actually called The Gods Aren't Angry. Um, like we don't need to be doing that pagan stuff. So uh, Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice, uh, the psalmist says, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. And then in Hosea, it says, Jesus actually quoted this from Hosea, where he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So all of these verses together uh, basically lead a lot of progressives to say, you know, we're the ones who want blood, not God. God never required a blood sacrifice. Um, so our whole understanding of the atonement being based on Jesus shed blood is misguided according to the, the progressive view. So, so help us with these verses that seem to say that God really never wanted them to do these sacrifices in the old Testament. Sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, and you know, this, Dealing with how the Old Testament works with the New is always going to be a challenge for a lot of people. I mean, Christians and non-Christians alike. It's it's something that we have to be patient with, and we have to kind of be humble with, and work through. So, uh, but let's let's look at Isaiah uh, 111, uh, since that was the the one that we we opened mm-hmm. with. And I think this is right off the bat is a good example of where we want to apply that principle of not just reading a single verse. And I know you did, and I'm not saying that, but if, if that's the, the key verse that we're going to hone in on where it says, uh, what importance to me are your many sacrifices, says the Lord. Uh, I'm stuffed with burnt sacrifices of rams and fat from steers and blood of bulls, lambs and goats I don't want. Um, if we just go back up a little bit, a few verses, even up to the beginning of the chapter, a lot of, a lot of that gets explained. To begin with, he's referring to them in verse 10 as Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's talking to the nation of Judah. Mm. So in verse 1, it says that this is a a prophecy delivered to the nation of Judah, uh, or revealed by Isaiah, at the time of the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So he gives you even even a time frame. For when this is being given, so if you wanted to, if you were you were inclined, you could go into like the books of First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles and go look for these names mm. and find out what what's going on. And some of the things that we do learn as you look at the nation of Israel. Uh, so this is where we start talking about what what was going on at the time. What what did it mean then? Is that Judah had two good kings in the entire reign from the time of their split from Israel. Everybody else was pagan, mm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what was going on was a lot of a lot of sinful practice, a lot of idol worship. I mean, King Ahaz uh, sacrificed his own son uh, to Moloch. He burned him on an altar. Uh, so, you know, this is the kind of thing that, that, that actually God had decreed would, would uh, be decreed judgment on Canaan years and years ago. And now Israel was doing it. So he's comparing them now to Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, kind of the example of wickedness mm-hmm. in the Bible. And this is his own people he's talking to. So there, there's a level of kind of sarcasm and rhetoric that's going on here uh, with what he's saying. And they're, they're talking about a group of people that are living in complete and abject sin. And I think the real explanation of why he says this to him, why he says, I don't want your, your sacrifices, I don't want your offerings, comes in one of the verses that you kind of mentioned uh, just kind of in passing. Because he goes on in, in verse 12, he says, you know uh, – you know, when you enter your enter my presence, you actually think I want this. You know, in verse thirteen, it says, "I don't bring me any more meaningless offerings." Right. Uh, 
And he says, yeah, I consider these things detestable. And at the very end of that verse, in verse 13, he says, I cannot tolerate sin-stained celebration. Wow. And, and see, there is, is really the key. Or, you know, if you went really direct, you might find it said, sin in your assembly. Well, and in the <laughs> translation know. I'm looking at, it says, I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. There you go. Yeah, and so some people are a little, depending on how they render this in English, is going to kind of change. But ultimately, the point is still there, is that everything they're doing is covered in sin. They're not actually offering genuine sacrifices. They're going through the motions. This is, this is ritual for the sake of ritual. You know, God instituted the sacrificial system as far back. Formerly, he did it with Moses. But you see it even, you can see hints of it in, in Adam and Eve in the garden. Right. Uh, you can see it with Noah, uh, even Abraham. Uh, yeah, so there's there's this idea of sacrifice all the way through the Old Testament. Well, God himself God, made the first sacrifice, which is interesting. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if we're going to argue that this is something that God never wanted this, then you have to ask the question, well, then why did God implement it? Why did he start it? And when we look at Isaiah, it's, he's not saying, I never wanted this. He's saying, I don't want your uh, your lip service. I don't want your, your hypocrisy. Um, and that's, that's kind of where this comes. He's not prescribing sacrifices because he's an angry God. I think that's, it's funny that you would, that the, the author would start that way because not only does that not represent the sacrificial system as it is in the Bible, but it also doesn't really accurately represent pagan sacrificial systems <laughs> either. Um, cause they would, even pagan religions offered sacrifices for multiple reasons. It wasn't just because gods were angry. It was because they needed harvest or they needed fertility. Right. Uh, you know, it was for, for all kinds of reasons. Um, yeah. So it wasn't, it's not that he's, he's not saying it's because I'm angry. The entire point of the sacrificial system is for holiness. It's for, for the forgiveness of sin, for, for an act of repentance on the part of the person. Um, and it associates with that person that there's a cost yeah. to their sin, yeah. you know? And so, you know, Leviticus, the, the theme of Leviticus, the book that everyone hates to read at Bible study time, you know, it's the word devotions go to die because it's so involved. Uh, you know, it's one of those complicated books of practices, but one of the themes that always comes up is be ye holy because I am yeah. holy. So the, the, the sacrificial system has nothing to do with appease my wrath because I am angry. It is, you need to live righteously you need to live holy because this is who I am and you are my people. Mm. Um, and when they stopped doing this at the time of Isaiah's prophecy, he wouldn't, he had nothing to do with it anymore. Mm. So, I mean, just in the context alone, we have some very important things to understand so that, and that's where you get your principles before you start talking about what he means to us. Um, you know, so the nation was, it's not, it's the sacrifices aren't the issue. It's the sin of the people. Right. And the fact that they're just going through empty ritual, in which case I would say that today, if you're if you are going to church because this is your obligation and this is what you're supposed to do, but you are not living in a life that reflects Christ or you have no interest in in the teachings of, of God's word, then you are in that same position. He doesn't want you there. That's a great point. Actually, it's a really good illustration because, it, you know, if we were to kind of parallel those two things. It's good to go to church. God said, don't forsake the assembling together. But if you're doing it and just living however you want and, and you know, your faith in Christ isn't really even a part of your life, but you're just going to church to go through the motions and, you know, appease your family or whatever, like that's detestable to God. But it doesn't mean going to church is detestable to God or that he never wanted you to do that. It's, it's, uh -huh. it's the heart issue behind what you're doing. So that's exactly. a really, that's, yeah. a, that's a great illustration there.
Okay, so the next um, verse that we're going to talk about is not just the progressive's favorite verse, but it's also the atheist's favorite verse. And this is Matthew 7, 1. And it's where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. And I've seen this a lot in progressive circles. Again, Benjamin Corey, who I referenced with the first one, has a blog post called Five Reasons You Might Want to Stop Judging Others. And he, of course, references this verse. So Clark, is does this verse mean that we should never judge anybody else for any reason on any sort of plane at all? <laughs> uh, you know, if it did, it would be a very difficult life, I think. Um, right. And, uh, you know, there's always, I, we should always probably take a moment and consider our position. If it's the same position as someone who doesn't believe God exists, right. um, that, that if, especially if we're going to stand on uh, the label of Christian, you know, there should be, there might be a little disconnect there. So we might, right. want to readdress that sometimes, but, um, but yeah, judge not, you know, it's, everybody likes this verse, Matthew seven, one. Um, but I've noticed it pretty consistently that they only, they only read Matthew seven, one, right. <laughs> it never goes any farther. Um, and it never discusses the, the passage. And, you know, like the reason we kind of started with the whole principles of, of interpretation is because it really revolves around everything, you know? Back, going back to the whole idea of not just reading a Bible verse. Let me, I'm gonna, just going to depart from Matthew for one second. I want you to hear the words of, of Jesus in John 7, 24, when he says, Do not judge according to outward appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, in John, and, and just you know, to, to put my nerd head on for a minute, when he says judge with righteous judgment, that's what we call a, a second-person imperative, mm. second-person plural imperative, which would basically say, but you are supposed to judge with righteous judgment, right. or you are to judge. So it's a command. Mm. Uh, this is what we would consider a command. Um, and he's responding to the Pharisees who are basically judging him on the basis of you know, what he's doing, his actions. And he, part of the larger picture of John is that he's saying, you're not listening to what I'm saying. Um, you're judging on outward appearances, but you're not listening to the words mm -hmm. that are being said. So you need to be judging righteously. So either Jesus is contradicting himself, mm -hmm. or there's something more to the judge not passage in Matthew mm -hmm. 7. Now, I know some people will just jump right to the, yeah, it's a contradiction. John's got his way and Matthew's got his way. Now, I'm not, uh, we, this, is, that's not, this is not the place to discuss, you know, how the Gospels work together necessarily. But I would say that that's not the, the best resort unless you have good reason to, right. to, to defend that. So if we take that and we go back to Matthew 7 and we look at that, we just need to read a little bit farther down. You know, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For by the standard you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be the measure you receive. So, you know, even in the very, literally the very next verse, Jesus explains the, the, the line that everyone wants to talk about. Um, he's saying the reason he doesn't want you to judge is because the way you're going to, the way you judge people is the way you're going to get judged. Um, and he goes on to talk about, you know, that, that famous uh, kind of gross imagery of the guy walking around with a log stuck in his eye, you know, and he's telling people to get the lint or the, the sleep out of their eye. You know, and uh, and that's the idea. You need, he says, you know, you can't even see somebody else's problem. <clears throat> and you know what? We and at this point, I would totally agree. Yeah. You know, I would totally agree. We don't need to judge uh, randomly, as if we are some kind of arbiter of what is right and wrong. I think, and that's something that I think as conservatives or Orthodox Christians uh, in general, we do need to be very conscious of. And I'm always very cautious of how 
how firmly I, I assert certain things because we need to recognize there's a lot of hurt people, mm-hmm. especially in progressive churches and other and not in church, mm-hmm. that are hurt because they were hurt by people in yes. the church who looked at this verse or did they looked at this verse in a different way and just condemned mm-hmm. them. Uh, they condemned them with, without any sense of their own sinfulness, without any sense of empathy or even grace. And so there's a lot of things that we need to we need to consider when we do something that might be considered judging. Yeah, that's but I'm sorry. No, I just that's good. I'm glad you brought that point up. Yeah. And, and then I think that's important because when we deal with this topic of judging, it's so very you know emotional and it attaches a lot of things to it. Um, but we need to ask, what does he mean by judging? And this is where that whole passage comes into play. So he talks about, he says, how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye when you have a beam in your own? He says, you're being a hypocrite. First, remove the beam from your own eye, and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, you know, the idea, he doesn't stop with don't judge. He tells you, first off, get, get what's blocking your vision out of the way. Deal with yourself first. And then, not it doesn't stop with deal with yourself first and leave them alone. It says deal with yourself first, and then when you can see clearly, when you can judge righteously, as we see in John 7, 24, then go and help your brother with what's in his eye. Mm-hmm. So when he we hear judgment and we think of condemn, condemnation, we think of you know gavel pounding, self-righteousness, mm-hmm. Bible thumping, and all those different adjectives that we put onto it. Um, but Jesus' analogy here is one of helping your brother. Right. So, well, and that reminds you know, me of, saying, help it reminds me of Galatians 6, where it's talking about if somebody's caught up in sin, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And yes, um, exactly. so, so it's, it's, we are supposed to confront each other. Confront is, you know, such a harsh word. And again, a lot of these words carry a lot of baggage. And I'm glad you brought up the point you did. Because I just worked on a blog post uh, I just posted today about uh, the the atonement of Jesus, substitutionary atonement being compared to cosmic child abuse. And I talk about in the blog post that I actually met a woman who was abused as a child by her father. And so all she knows is a wrathful, abusive father who his wrath was petty and selfish and evil. And so every time she hears language about God's wrath, she winces because that's all she can relate that to is her own earthly father. So, um, yeah, I, I think that words can carry baggage, but it is important to know what Jesus meant by judge, because obviously he's not saying to never judge, because if a guy shows up at my doorstep with a gun I'm not going to let him in. I'm going to make the judgment right. yeah. that, you know, now if it's a police officer that shows up for a purpose, you know, and he's armed, that might be a different story, but you have to make those judgments, you know, right. obviously. Um, so, so that's, yeah, that's, that's good. And I think it's important too, that, you know, one of the things that we would tends to be missing is that we don't apply teaching like this in the way it's being presented to Jesus himself. Mm. Jesus was an incredibly judgmental person. Right, yes, he was. <laughs> you know, if you look, I, I've been reading through Matthew, um, you know, every day, a little bit of a few pages uh, a day, and uh, I'm in the woe period of Matthew 23. <laughs> you know, one of the things that he says, you know, is two Pharisees and scribes, he's calling them hypocrites. Yeah. He's calling them empty tombs and dirty cups and all these other things. I mean, those are ju- that's judgmental yeah. language, you know. So it's, it, unless Jesus is saying, you need to hold up to a standard that's bigger than me, um, then we've got a real issue. Yeah. Uh, then now, you, now you're calling into question the very nature of the person you say we're supposed to interpret all of the Bible through. Yeah, good point. Um, so, okay, so we, it's one of those things where we have to connect everything 
um, you know, you can't just have a piece of this and a piece of that. They have to work together or they don't work at all. Another one is um, John 539. Now, this one is interesting, and I've heard this in several different scenarios used in the progressive church. And, you know, because typically, again, this it's really hard to pin down because progressives, they don't all believe the same thing. I mean, I don't I wouldn't want to put them all in a box any more than I'd want them to put all evangelicals in a box. So um, just to make that disclaimer, but there is a certain, you know, flavor of progressive Christianity <laughs> that really wants to set aside the scriptures that that would still say, yes, the Bible is a great book. It's 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 our book. But, you know the people who wrote that book, they didn't get everything right, just like we don't get everything right. So God is continually progressing throughout history and, you know, helping us understand him. And so one of the verses that gets brought up is John 5, 39, in which Jesus says to um, the Pharisees, and to give a little context, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he heals a guy uh, on the Sabbath. And so, of course, this is a big no-no with the Pharisees. and And so they get upset with Jesus about it. And uh, he says to them, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. And so, uh, again, when back when I was in a progressive church, this verse was brought up like, hey, guys, look here, Jesus is saying, you don't need to put the Bible on the same level with me or, you know, it, is, it has to do with biblical authority. You know, it's not very authoritative. And so often the, the example gets made that Jesus is called the word of God. And, and so Jesus is kind of, you know, who we should view as the word of God. And the Bible is more of a human book. Um, and the two are kind of pitted against each other. And so an example of this is uh, from Brian McLaren's book, uh, A New Kind of Christianity. And I'm just going to quote a little bit from it. He says, this is why we cannot simply say that the highest revelation of God is given through the Bible, which again, I would, you know, Jesus is the word of God, God incarnate, of course. But he'd say, rather, we would say that for Christians, the Bible's highest value is in revealing Jesus, who gives us the highest, deepest, and most mature view of the character of the living God. And then he goes on to say, Christians have made the Bible the third member of the Trinity. And I've heard this a lot. They use the word bibliolatry. Um, and then he goes on to give this illustration that the Bible should be interpreted in the light of Jesus, which I think you and I would agree with. But yeah, yeah in his mind, though, he I think and in some of the progressive world, this means rejecting anything about the Bible that you don't find in the meek and mild Jesus that you read in the New Testament. So untangle some of those knots for us. Clark. <laughs> yeah, there, and there's kind of a, kind of quite a few knots there, but um <laughs> It's true, yeah, there's a lot of truth in there, um, but then there the way is, it's applied can be kind of wonky. So yeah, yeah, and there is, and I think um, as far as you know, uh, Jesus is saying here in, in John, it is an interesting kind of a step away to say that this is telling them that the Bible is not as important as as Jesus. Um, but you know, he he's making a comment to them that actually relates back to something the Jews. Believed. We have uh, an old Jewish book called the Perkei Avot, which is, means sayings of the fathers or chapters of the fathers. And it's supposed to contain teachings that were given from Moses onward that rabbis used. And in that, it says, he who has acquired the words of the law has acquired for himself the life of the world to come. <laughs> and so they kind of they, – they actually did believe that in, in scriptures, in the Old Testament, that by studying it, they would possess eternal life. Oh. So he's – 
he's actually hinting them right in a point that they would have known. Yeah. Now that's um, a great point because I don't think modern readers, I did not know that. Yeah. And you know, and I, I don't expect, you know, just you know, the person sitting down with coffee, reading their Bible to come to that, that, you know, that's helpful if you have like a commentary yeah, or something yeah. that can go there. But you know, this is just some things that historical research has shown us. And, uh, and one of the things, the point that's really getting made, and I think it's a very good point that Jesus is making one that maybe, you know, not to, to, offend anybody that maybe Mr. McLaren would, would benefit from is that he's saying if you just let the text speak for itself it would tell you about me right you know and he's saying you search the scriptures because you think in the scriptures you have eternal life but they uh, these same scriptures they testify about me mm. you know and he's saying so you're 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 looking at me and you're saying you're, you're so intent on arguing against me because of the scripture, but you're not actually reading. You're not actually listening to what it's saying. Um, their understanding of the law, they thought that's what was going to give them eternal life. But he was pointing out the fact that your understanding of the law is not right. Mm. You're not looking to what it's pointing to. So he's not actually saying I'm superior to the scriptures in that sense, but he's saying that um, they're actually pointing to me. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, too, that you would, the argument would be that because Jesus is the word of God, in the Bible secondary. Whenever someone says we've we've kicked out, you know, we've made the Bible the third member of the Trinity, I always want to know who we kicked out. Right. Because we already, you know, unless we're, we're going to go into four now, I'm not sure who got demoted. Right, I know. I wondered but, uh, the same thing, actually. <laughs> but the the idea that, you know, so if we take McLaren's words on, on face, you know, since Jesus is the word of God, the Bible secondary. Well, I have to ask Mr. McLaren, how do you know Jesus is the word of God? And the answer, of course, is that you read it in the Bible. Right. So you're actually using the authority of the Bible to disprove the authority of the Bible. Mm. And that's kind of a self-defeating position to find yourself in. Now, I granted, I know he's a little more nuanced than that. And he's saying, well, there's sections of the Bible that we need to be careful with. But, of course, as you said, it's based on how he understands Jesus. And if the interpretation of Jesus is meek and mild, then you have to be very selective about which passages of Jesus you're talking about. That's true. You know, we are talking— we are talking about the Jesus that, that condemns the scribes and Pharisees. We're talking about a Jesus that overturns uh, tables. We're talking about the same Jesus that is depicted in the book of Revelation in a very, very kind of wrathful way. You know, we can't just excise the book of Revelation from Scripture. It's something that has to be dealt mm -hmm. with. Um, so either we pick and choose what we want, in which case it's fair game, and I could simply tell McLaren, uh, Mr. McLaren the same thing. I'd say, well, I don't, I don't agree with that part, so... It's not valid to me. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't agree with your depiction of Jesus. I see a Jesus this way. Yeah. And how is he going to tell me I'm wrong? Right. You know, where do you appeal to? Where is your authority to appeal to other than his education or his training or his perspective? And what makes his perspective any different than mine? Um, you know, so we have to have some standard of authority. And if you say, well, it's Jesus. Okay, but how do you know anything about Jesus unless you're using the Bible? Yeah, I've never really understood. I remember being in the progressive church. And that word bibliolatry, which interestingly, I believe, was coined by a conservative, uh, J.P. Moreland, mm -hmm. wrote a, a very yeah. interesting essay on that. But the point he was making was nothing like what the word has turned into, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But, um, bib, you know, bibliolatry, like we are holding the Bible up as this idol. I never understood mm -hmm. that because if we have the words of God in a book... Mm -hmm. To obey them or to hold them with the highest authority doesn't mean we're worshiping 
the paper. It, it's it's right. it's all tied in together. And and interestingly too, you know, Jesus didn't see any contradiction between him being the Word made flesh and the Bible. He he quoted the Bible as authoritative. He quoted prophets from the Old Testament saying, "God said to you." you know, and then quotes the words of the prophet. So <clears throat> it's just interesting that Jesus didn't seem to see this this contradiction or this, um, you know, pitting the word of God versus the word of God as as some people do in modern, in modern times. So it's an interesting yeah. one. Uh, another one is uh, Matthew 7, 12. Now this one is when it's the famous passage where Jesus gives the golden rule. And he says, so in everything do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, this is the next part is what I think gets really kind of misinterpreted here. He says, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And so in my experience of progressive Christianity, typically when, when he says, for this sums up the law and the prophets, what they're taking it to mean, whether they mean it to, to come off this way or not, is that. Basically, all we need now is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, you know, that's all that stuff was about anyway. So don't even worry about it. You know, in fact, if you go to progressivechristianity.com, you will find a handy golden rule poster. And what it does is it goes and gives all the different iterations of the golden rule from various different religions, because rightfully, you know, throughout history, different philo philosophical systems and religious systems have given different iterations of the golden rule. In fact, I wrote a blog post called Did Jesus Rip Off Confucius when he taught the golden rule? And so, I mean, yes, this is a principle that, it, that people have discovered throughout the history of the world. And... Um, but, you know, as I argue in my, my blog post, though, it's like the Bible says that the law is written on our hearts. It's not any big surprise that people have discovered that it's good to be nice to each other, you know. And um, but in progressive circles like this becomes the, the key f core element or belief that binds everything together. And this is really what true religion is. And um, so it's it's eliminating the need for anything else. Uh, so if you love your neighbor, you do what's good. You know, Mark, Mark 12, 30 is another one that kind of goes with it. Love yeah. the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So does that mean that all of, you know, things that the Bible forbids or defines as sin no longer matter because all we need to do is love each other? You know, I think that's a very good question. I mean, it is something we need to would deal with because that language of, you know, the law and the prophets are fulfilled or, or completed in, in this does cause us to question. And I think even, you know, uh, Brian McLaren or any progressive Christian would agree with me that it's because this is something that Jesus is telling us, it is important that we understand what he means. Um, you know, I would not want to be misusing anything that's a command. Yeah. Um, so the question becomes, you know, what, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by do unto others as you would have them? do to you. And there is a subtle difference. And I, I, I remember your post. I don't remember if this was in there. It probably was. But in that every other rendition of this is actually a negative rendition. Yes. It's don't do yes. to others. Um, or, you know, and, and even, even actually when the church fathers quote this, they still, they do it that way too. They say, don't do to others. Um, whereas Jesus, he's, he renders it positively, which is do to others. So where and there's it's kind of a subtle difference, but in one way, it's one one version is just avoid 
hurting other people, whereas Jesus is proactively go and help other. Yeah, people. it's not enough to just you know, not do; you have to do. Yeah, so there there is a there is actually a subtle shift in the way Jesus presents this. It's a little bit different than you see in other religions. Um, and so again, we have to ask, what does he mean by that? Is he talking about some kind of a permissive response? You know, you do you, and I'll do me, and we'll just be fine. And you know, and I'm not gonna, you know, kind of goes back to the beginning of this passage. I'm not gonna judge you, um, you know, and that kind of thing. You know, and and of course, it's always easy to emphasize. Well, Jesus ate with tax collectors, and he ate with prostitutes, and he ate with sinners, and he did. You know, yeah. uh, he forgave sinners, um, and he, but he always told them to cease from sin. Yeah. You know. Uh, and we got to remember, again, I like to use it as a good example because it doesn't always fit into the box that we want. Uh, he referred to the Pharisees in faith, in their in their face as children of Satan. Yeah. <laughs> he told them they're children of Satan. He told them that a murderer was going to get into heaven before yeah. them. So, you know, he, those are kind of judgmental things. And, and I would think that most of us would not want to be called a child of Satan. Right. <laughs> you know, we, we would not want to be judged in such a way. You know, don't I don't want to be called a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. You know, I don't want those things. So how is it that Jesus could get away with saying, you essentially love your neighbor while simultaneously saying things that don't sound very loving? And I think it become it comes down to what does he mean by that? You know, what does he mean by love? What does he mean by treating someone in a way that you would want to be treated? Well, the Pharisees, they didn't want what Jesus was teaching. Right. You know, they wanted their control. Um, they, I mean, it'd be silly if we didn't think that they didn't pray three times a day, which was their custom, pray three times a day. And they weren't asking the father to put this man to death who was raising up people against mm-hmm. them. I mean, they were talking about pious Jews. They were at, they would be asking God to judge Jesus because he was against them. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, 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 they wanted to maintain where they were. But what Jesus was doing was he was calling them out for things that needed to be repented of. He was doing something that was actually good. It was actually loving Mm -hmm. because he was trying to show them that the way that they're on was going to lead them to death um, and that eternal life was available if they would just see it. And so, you know, sometimes he uses some harsh language. You're like, wow, that's really judgmental. But as we said before, sometimes judging is an important, is a good thing. It's an important thing. It's a, it's a helpful Mm -hmm. thing. Um, You know, and we need to realize that even seven, 12, the, from pretty much 12 to the end of the chapter is the culmination of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Mm. So, you know, when he says in, he's kind of going, when he says this golden rule, he's enveloping everything he's just told them. You know, so he's saying in all of this is do unto others as you would have them do to you. You know, so he said, you know, hunger and thirst after righteousness mm-hmm. because you want others to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Be pure in heart. Be a visible light to the world. Be that salt. He also said divorce is wrong. He said lust is wrong. You know, he he called out different things that you shouldn't do as part of doing unto others that you would have them do to you. So, you know, it's this idea that there are certain things that maybe we don't feel are loving or we don't like at the time that in actuality, if we had a greater perspective, would be. Um, and, of course – Going back to the original, uh, one of the original comments, we also, as Christians, need to be very careful and cautious on how we act in that way, you know, so that we're not misrepresenting that. But it kind of comes back to something Jim Wallace is very famous for saying about temporal mindset, Mm. you know, that if we think that this life is all we have, you know, if you have like 80 years of time span, then what you do right here and right now is ultimately it. That's all that matters. And that dictates how we do everything. It's going to dictate how we read this passage of love your neighbor. I mean, if my neighbor who is engaged in some form of sin that I think is 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 wrong, but all I but all he's got is these eighty years, I, you know, 
eat, drink, and be merry because you're going to die soon. I'm not going to get in the way of that. That's the most loving thing I can do because he needs to enjoy the little bit of time that he has. But if we are Christians and we are taking in the whole counsel of what Jesus says and the whole counsel of what the men that followed him said, then there's more. It's an eternal line. It's not just the 80 years. And that 80 years on a line of eternity becomes a very small thing. Mm -hmm. And is it more important to endure a little bit of hardship, a little bit of pain uh, for the sake of an eternity of good? You know, and so getting that perspective, and this was Jesus's perspective, you know, he spoke endlessly about the resurrection at the end and eternal life. Mm -hmm. Then what he means by good and loving is going to be rather different than what the majority of people today who don't have an eternal mindset think of good and loving. Exactly. And so, and so, yeah, that, that, that becomes the key, the key for us. So, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to act in a way that is arrogant or shameful or self-righteous, but that doesn't mean there isn't a righteous way and a, a loving way to do the things that are necessary that may appear to be unloving. Those kind of things where sometimes you have to contradict someone. Sometimes you have to disagree. That's just the nature of being in a relationship with people. You know, I know you and your husband have never had an argument, but most marriages, (laughs) most marriages, they have arguments, you know, but that, and that's, and that's loving. And sometimes it's loving, but you know, it's, it's the idea that we have to be able to disagree and love. Well, it's like, it's like a parent with their child, you know, like do unto others. Well, if you go with the child's definition of do unto others, then you're going to let them, watch whatever they want on TV, just go wherever they want, whenever they want, come home whenever they want, because to them, that's what they would want to be done to them. But again, it really matters how we define love, because of course, a parent's love is going to have a lot of boundaries, is going to say, no, you can't stay out all night with whoever, you know, I need to know where you are. And no, you can't go to that place or do this, you know, and that's parents, that is what love causes us to do. And so I think as as we mature, our idea of what doing unto others is going to become more refined and more, um, you know, more, more godlike, I think. Um, cause it's a really a childish view to say, yeah, just everybody have fun. Don't hurt anyone. I mean, that's, that's a really low view of love really. Sure. And I think the book of Hebrews really, uh, lays this out best because it, it states in a, I'm just doing this off the top of my head. So I'll probably, I'm not sure about the exact passage. I believe it's Hebrews 10 or 11 or maybe 12. Uh, it's in that range, uh, where he says that God disciplines those whom he loves. And it even goes on to say that, you know, that when we're disciplined by a father, we don't feel the discipline is, it feels good at the time, right? but we know that it works for greater benefit. You know, so the very depiction of God is one of a, of a father who lovingly disciplines, mm-hmm. You know, so if, if we, again, if we try to apply this to the greater context of even just the New Testament, you know, they, we have to see how they align. So it would mean that doing unto others as you would have them do unto you and God being a God who loves but also disciplines, they have to coincide in some way in our life. We have to be willing to love in a way that sometimes may seem like discipline or it may seem like uh, something that's not nice. Yeah, even painful <laughs> sometimes, you know. Yeah. All right, I got a good one for you here to end with. So this is not actually a specific verse, but it's more of an idea that has to do with the Bible. And interestingly, I've even heard some what people would consider to be conservative Christians teaching something like this as well, which is interesting. And that's that Jesus broke the Torah, that he broke God's law. And so one of the sources I'm going to use for this is a a blogger, speaker, and author named Glennon Doyle Melton. And for anyone who doesn't know who she is, she's 
um, when she began, she had a, like a mom blog and a Christian mom blog. And then she wrote a book and she's been on Oprah. And so she has a blog post on her site that the title is this, I think Jesus would be gay or no, she didn't. <laughs> and she's got a really kind of engaging writing style. It's kind of funny and stuff. So she's, she's basically the, the whole point of her article is that Jesus broke the Torah. And um, so, you know, she's talking about these faithful Jews that viewed the Bible as the sacred, inerrant word of God. A faithful Jew did not stray from the rules in that book. And so they prided themselves on how closely they clung to these laws. So then Jesus comes along and he heals people on holy days and interacts with unclean women and hung with folks from the wrong side of the track, she says. And, and so the religious leaders of the day were absolutely scandalized by this. So here was a rabbi openly defying the clear rules that were clearly written in the Torah, the word of God. And she has that in all caps. And so she talks about the Pharisees confronting Jesus again and again and again. And then she goes to the example where Jesus looks at them and says, if one of your lambs was stuck in a hole on the Sabbath, wouldn't it be the right thing to get him out? Wouldn't you do that for your lamb? And aren't people much more important than lambs? And so here's how she sums that up. She says, in other words, isn't there a law of love in our hearts that overrides the individual laws in our books? Is there not? Jesus knew there was because he created their hearts. He was asking them to trust their conscience, to trust the love he put in their heart, to use not only their scripture, but common sense. So she's saying that because Jesus broke the Torah based on his conscience, he's the one who put our conscience within us. So we should follow that example. So Clark did, first of all, did Jesus break the Torah? And then is that an example we should follow? Sure. Um, you know, this, and this is something that, that does come up a lot, and it is something that we kind of have to look at because there are times where, you know, we might come to that conclusion that it's, Jesus does some things that don't seem like they match with the law. Now, I am thankful and kind of surprised that she didn't uh, use the woman caught in adultery. That tends to be where everyone goes. She may have. I, it's, it was a long post. <laughs> oh, and I, I forgot to mention, too, that hmm. this isn't just some obscure little thing in the corner of the Internet. This This particular post to date, I checked it yesterday, has had over six, 76,000 shares, like not just views, but that's how many shares it's had. So it really yeah. resonated with a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I can see why it would, you know, it, because there is a certain appeal to the idea. Um, there is a fundamental principle that seems to be uh, being applied in a little bit of mistake. And that is that because Jesus did this, we should allow our conscience to dictate this. And Essentially, you just equated your own conscience to Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've kind of put yourself in the position of being the moral arbitrator for whatever you want because Jesus did it, therefore so can I. Um, and we're, we're forgetting about the greater picture of who Jesus was in Scripture. You know, so there's this implementation of that. I'm not Jesus. Yeah. There, you know, he did, he did serve uh, as a teacher to and an example of many things that we are to do. But there was an element of Jesus, the fact that he is divine, the fact that he is one of the members of the Trinity, that I, th I would assume that this blogger would accept. Uh, maybe she doesn't. At least McLaren would accept, uh -huh. you know, accept that Jesus was a member of the Trinity or is a member of the Trinity. Yeah. So he has a certain attribute to himself that we do not have. Um, and so there is a certain element where he may do some things that we're not going to do. Right. <laughs> But as far as the example, you know, of what he says, you know, regarding going after a lost sheep, 
and that he's breaking the law. She emphasizes that these, uh, from what you quoted, that these Pharisees were uh, were determined to follow what was written in the Torah. But again, if we walk with Jesus through the Gospels, and this is again where it's kind of helpful with the fact that I've been in Matthew for the last few months, <laughs> taking my time. Um, one of the things he continues to emphasize is that what they are doing is the traditions of men. Right. And he's not meaning that the law was the traditions of men, but that because he's very clear about what he means when he says it, that you have added upon the mm -hmm. law. You know, you tithe for this and that and this. Is you know, you tithe of your spices, but then you condemn people who, you know, who who swear by the temple. You know, he's like, you, and you 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 basically send people to hell because of your traditions. And so, one of the things he's pointing out to them throughout all of his ministry, especially with the healings on the Sabbath, is that what they have applied to it, um, and you can go, what they've applied to it is is not the law. Right. And, uh, and you can you can look at. I mean, most of your most of your commentaries will discuss. Uh, what they did and how many different things they changed, you know, and it, it becomes a, a very interesting um, question of how do you apply the law mm. in various circumstances? Mm -hmm. You know, what qualifies as work? What qualifies as not work? How far can you walk before it's work? Mm -hmm. You know, all those different things. And so they started making this more and more specific as time went on. And what Jesus is trying to return them to in many of these cases is the spirit of the law, mm. that doing something good, doing something to help someone is not work. It's righteousness. Mm -hmm. It's mercy. You know, the very things that he is doing. And he affirmed, he reminds them that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. You know, you might, you might have the traditions that you've established, established but I'm the Lord of the mm -hmm. Sabbath. I gave this to you uh, as a means of rest, not as a, not as a, as a burden to wear upon your mm -hmm. neck, which is kind of what it had become. You know, and what we, what we find is that his continual message is not against the law. He says, I'm the fulfillment mm -hmm. of the law. He says it very clearly, I'm not here to break the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. I'm here to complete it. Um, the, the, the message is not uh, against the law. It's against what they have made it into. Um, in many ways, he has made the law more difficult for mm -hmm. people. When he started talking, he said, you know, he compared anger to murder and lust to adultery. You know, he made it more specific. You know, and so one of the things that we end up be doing and we need to be very careful about, and I, see, I used to see this a lot with the historical Jesus studies, mm -hmm is that when we want to get back to finding the real Jesus, quote-unquote, uh, he always ends up looking like us. Mm. You know, when German liberal theologians decided we're going to find the historical Jesus, it always turned out that the historical Jesus was a German liberal theologian. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and I was like, well, that's <laughs> odd. Uh, you know, and I'm guilty of this too, so I don't, and I'm not wagging a finger at anybody, that I need to be very cautious that when I start to, to, to try to depict Jesus, that I'm not depicting someone yeah. who's a lot like yeah. me. Because he's not going to fit in my box, and he's not going to fit in Mr. McLaren's box or even this blogger's box mm -hmm. either because he, he didn't fit in anybody's box. And so we need to be willing to let the scripture that tells us about him inform us about who he is. And, and it's easy to do this, and it's, it's something we all are prone to is to take a part that we like and use it over the parts that we don't mm -hmm. like rather than trying to look at this kind of as a tapestry of both things. There are things that I don't like. I don't like some of the language Applied to Jesus, it's, it does it does bother me. But I have to rec I also recognize that it was for the way he was using it was appropriate, mm -hmm. you know. And I we have to be willing to ask the hard questions, but we can't just come to our own conclusions without letting the rest of what Jesus did and say help inform that. All right, Clark's website is exegesus.com. Check it out. It's e x e j e s u s dot com. Clark, thanks so much, and we'll talk soon. All right, great. Thank you.
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my weekly posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes.